Psalm 62. All right. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we'll have the uh, text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. We also have uh, some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we invite you to take that one home. Uh, the reason for that's incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in, about, and around your life to be shaped by that knowing him, uh, to be defined by, filtered through the lens of that knowing him. And if the scripture is what he uses to do that in you, like, 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 let's, let's dig into those. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word of your own, take that one. We'll call it a good day. Um, so we wrapped up our last series about four weeks ago now. Uh, we've kind of piddling around in little standalone uh, kind of stuff since then. And I don't know about you, but I think it's high time that we bury ourselves back in a book of the Bible. Sound like a good plan to you? That seems to be our happy place as a church. That seems to be where we're most comfortable. Uh, and so once we decided to commit ourselves uh, to kind of a, a short series over the next seven to eight weeks, it became pretty obvious to me uh, where we needed to kind of focus our attention. Uh, and that place is the Psalms. All right, the Psalms. Uh, you may have heard this before. I know I've said it out loud at least a couple of times, uh, but it's kind of my kind of second tier, third tier maybe dream here uh, to kind of get through, preach through as many of the Psalms as I can in however many years that God allows me to, to hang out here. Uh, and so just kind of knock as many out as possible. Uh, my hope is that if, if Jesus tarries and he allows me to hang out for another several years in a row, we'll just knock out a big old chunk of them, right? Um, we've knocked out several of them off the list so far uh, over the last couple of years. We've already made a dent. And so with another seven to eight weeks, we can turn that dent into a slightly larger dent. All right? There's a lot of Psalms. Uh, we're not going to, we're probably, I'm just going to be honest, not going to get through all 150 of them unless Jesus gives me like 80 years here. All right, but it's not just the timing. It's not just the goal that's driving this. The Psalms also lend themselves incredibly well to having a bunch of different guys stand up and own one. All right. Uh, kind of assigning them to, doling them out as assignments to a bunch of different guys. And so this is my last Sunday here before I leave for an extended uh, period of time, several weeks in a row. And, and so the idea that, that we can have multiple men in our church say, yes, I'll take this and I'll take this and I'll take this, that's a win-win for us. It's a big win-win for us. And so I think God is putting the pieces together here for us to, to be in a healthy place. And well, I'm excited about it. So now that we've like, I know we've, we've talked about this in other times in the past, but it's been a while since we've been in the Psalms, and we've got a lot of new faces around here. So let's, let's talk about what the Psalms are in the most general sense for just a second. As a collective whole, the Psalms feel, feel like they cover the entire range of human emotion, right? Like there's ups, there's downs, uh, for good and for ill. The Psalm writers always seem to kind of wear their hearts on their sleeve. You get that? Uh, those of you who have, who have dug deeply into the Psalms, uh, like, like that, that's hard for me to process, though. Is anybody else like that? I, I come to the Psalms, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, slow down, tiger, all right? And so there, there are bits of the Psalms, there are pieces in the Psalms that, that make me go, I'm not sure I can follow you there. I tend to be more cerebral. I prefer a clear, logical flow, and I really, really like an application at the end. Go do this, and then, so I can go do that and be successful, Right? But the Psalms never try to give you that. They're not aiming for that. Whenever we're reading and preaching through a Psalm, it's important to always remember to lean more towards what the writer feels or felt rather than what the writer did. 
Rather than giving a logical flow of this thing occurred and, or this thing is true, so therefore now go and live likewise or go and see the world, view the world through this lens, the psalmist instead invites you into experiencing the heart and the struggle of God's people as they lived. And sometimes they're getting things really right. And a whole bunch of times they're getting things very unright. But it's always real. It's always genuine. As they attempted and usually failed to follow God and trust Him, as they attempted and usually failed to walk in righteousness, whatever is coming out of them at the moment, it's all laid out for all, everybody else to kind of read about and lean into and see. That's why we can sometimes finish reading a psalm and feel like we've been on a roller coaster, right? Like it's up, it's down. You get, you get done with a psalm and sometimes you're not sure if the writer needs like a high five or some kind of antidepressant. And I, I would hope, like I would genuinely hope that probably everybody in this room has moments where we can look at the raw emotion of the psalms and kind of wonder what got into that person. I would hope that all of us find ourselves there in, in some place. Like, if the Psalms never feel, like, like overwhelming to you, over the top for you, like, like we should talk. Like, I got a good counselor you can call. But listen, even if you're not the emotive type, even if you're the more cerebral and thoughtful one, like, I, I also have no doubt at all that every one of us in this room has moments where we look at the Psalms and go, oh man, that rings true. I know exactly what that's like. That was Thursday for me, right? I get it. I think we can all point to moments in our lives where praise exploded out of us before we were able to put a filter on it. You have those moments? We've got lots of those moments. And I think we have other moments where we're not sure which way is up. We've got lots of those moments too. And I think we've all got moments where it seems like celebration and sorrow blend together in a way that we can't even explain. Is that true of you? We're complex people. And so perhaps, here's my working theory, but perhaps God has preserved the Psalms for us because we're not all that different from his people all those years ago. We're a lot more like ancient Israel than we like to believe. Really big highs, really deep lows, with countless grand sweeps in between the two. So you ready to dig in? I think that while the Psalms may be hard to navigate in our more put-together moments, I think maybe disciplining ourselves to lean in when, we, when we're kind of doing okay might be beneficial to us when we're not doing so okay. So let's, let's start off by looking at the superscript. Some, some translations will include this as a part of verse 1. Uh, others, like the ESV, don't. Uh, they'll keep it separate. Uh, but it is original to the text. And so let's, let's look at it real quick. The superscript. All right, so, or some might call it the title. It says this. It says, To the choir master, according to Jedithan, a psalm of David. Do we even have it in our, our like, <laughs> like presentation software? Yeah, so the presentation software didn't even include it. There you go. All right, so... If you have a physical Bible, this is a benefit of that. There you go. All right. To the choir master, according to Jedithan, a psalm of David. So right off the bat, we see three things in these short little uh, few bits of words that we've, we've got to talk about. Three things that we can, learn, uh, we can learn who the psalm is written by, who the psalm is written to, and most likely what the psalm is written like. All right? Who it's written by, who it's written to, and likely who it's, what it's written like. So let's start with the easiest part. Who wrote it? 
David wrote it. King David, if you weren't sure. David is responsible for roughly half of uh, the 150 psalms in the Psalter. Apparently, David was a little bit of a songwriting machine. All right? I don't have that in me. Apparently, he had that in him. And sometimes, sometimes the psalms tell us when or where they were written, but we don't get that here. All right? We're just not told. Right? David says some things in the psalm that cause us to believe that he is actively being attacked or oppressed by some kind of group of people who want him to fail. And so we can put some pieces together about some things, but we're also talking about David here. So like, it doesn't exactly narrow down the list. All right? David's got a lot of moments in his life where there are people on his tail. He's got a lot of drama following him. Uh, David's the kind of guy that always seems to have a problem following him around. And a big chunk of the reason why is because David's also the kind of guy that usually creates his own problems. Right? You know people like that in your life. People who always have drama because they create the drama. That's David. He gets you. Gets in his own way a lot. But we're, we're not sure when in the timeline of his life that this psalm was, you know, falls into when it was written, all we can do is speculate, but just know that there are some folks who want to give David a bad day. They're actively trying to, to tear him down. But we don't know just who it's written by. We've also got this weird part about it being according to Jeduthun. What do we do with that? Well, to be honest, we don't know. <laughs> I mean, we've got some really smart sounding ideas, but Nothing is actually locked down. We can't point to it and say, yes, Jeduthun means this, all right? Our best guess, our best guess is that it's some, somehow denoting the style of the music. Um, there's a couple of ways that that can flesh itself out. Either A, because Jeduthun is the name of some kind of musical style, musical notation, and so over time, like, like we've just lost the definition of whatever that means. Right? We, we, there are actually several words in the Psalms that are exactly in the same category. We just don't know what it means, but the way it's used, okay, musical notation sounds great. Whatever Jeduthun is, whether it's fast or slow or loud or, 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 or growing, whatever the musical notation we want, sure, assign that to it. All right? Option B, though, is another smart theory is that it's maybe the name of a real musician who has a certain identifiable musical style. And so by simply saying, play it like a Jeduthun song, everybody knows what that means. And we kind of have modern equivalents like that in our own day. Coldplay, Garth Brooks, Green Day, all of their songs sound the same. Right? The moment one starts on the radio, you're trying to figure out which Green Day song it is. If option B is true, then apparently Jeduthun had a similar reputation. Musicians have always been stealing their own stuff. So we've got the author. We've got what's probably the style. What's the third thing we learn? Who it's written to, the audience, right? It says, to the choir master. Or if you're from the KJV generation, to the chief musician, right? So who is the choir master? Um, well, he's the guy in charge of leading the musical worship of the congregation of Israel. He's the guy who's been formally assigned with leading the congregation of Israel to worship in a musical way. Okay, awesome. So why exactly is that important? Well, all of the psalms were intended to be sung by the congregation. That's why they are collected into the Psalter. That's why we have them in the book of Psalms. But, but then about a third of the psalms, roughly a third, uh, are addressed directly to this choir master figure. So that tells us that some of the psalms were written on a personal basis and then they became a congregational song. We, we got songs like that in the church today, right? Songs that, that some artist has written, they ended up on the radio, everybody got excited about it, we're like, hey, let's figure out a way to play that in church. 
right? There are songs that were written for a different purpose and they became a congregational song. It was picked up by the congregation to sing as a congregation. But then there are also, it seems, some songs that were written expressly with the congregation in mind. They didn't have to get requested a lot at the local Caleb affiliate for church leadership to snatch them up. They were written, they were put in whatever the 8th century B.C. version of an envelope happens to be. They were sent directly to the song leader and say, here you go, play this on the next Sabbath day. That means, that means that this isn't some random song that you know, was, somebody thought was inspirational, a song that was written, you know, it was written with an explicit purpose of shaping the worship of God's people. There's aim and intent buried in this. It was written explicitly for shaping the worship of God's people. A songwriter somewhere, in this case David, thinks it's important to put specific words in the mouths of the congregation for a specific moment. You know all music teaches? Always. All music teaches. You may not be aware of the lesson taking shape around you, but it is always teaching. Congregational music is no different. It's just doing a little bit more honestly, more directly. The question church leaders always have to answer is, when it comes to music for the church, is if a particular song is teaching what needs to be taught, what ought to be taught. That's the question that church leaders have to answer. So what is David trying to teach God's people through music here? Well, verse 1. Let's look at it. Verse 1, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Verse 2, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. All right, so what does David want to sing about? His confidence in the Lord. That's what. That's what, that's what he wants the congregation to sing. He says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. And right out of the gate, like that one sentence we see the introduction of two of the two major themes throughout this psalm, right? Something standing alone and rest. Over and over again. The, that, the idea buried there in the, in that, the Hebrew word for that, that word silence, um, it, it means rest. That's what's going on. It's not, it's not merely the absence of noise or even the absence of the thing producing noise. Those of you with little kids in your house, you know for certain that Quiet doesn't always mean good, right? I got little kids in my house. Oftentimes, quiet means bad. But that's not the note that David is striking here. He's not talking about mere silence. He's talking, not talking about being quiet. He's talking about a restful silence that comes with having absolutely nothing to be anxious over. It's gone. It's gone. He's talking about one of those moments where the drama fades into the background because it finally occurred to you that it's not your responsibility to deal with it because someone else who's better than you has it handled. Oh, but I, I thought you said a moment ago that David's life was a train wreck and there were all kinds of problems always falling around. And this song was probably written during one of those times. Yeah, I did. And apparently, David isn't bothered by it. Not in the least. It's interesting. What else does he say? He also says, from him comes my salvation. Who's the him? So in the midst of the chaos, David's moment of rest occurs when he remembers 
how he relates to God. That's where his rest comes from. He doesn't doesn't come to some grand realization that the problem isn't actually a problem, and he doesn't come to some moment where he figures out that the consequences that are bearing down on him aren't actually consequences at all. That's not at all what's going on. No, he remembers just for a moment that he has a refuge from the problem. That's what he realizes. And that's affirmed in the couplet in verse 2. It says, He, God, alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. You ever have a moment where you remind yourself of something you already knew? Give yourself a little pep talk in the old inner monologue? Nobody else? It's just me? Okay, okay. That's exactly what's happening here. That's exactly what's happening here. Listen, not only, not only does it prove that you aren't alone, because, I mean, look at David. David does it all the time. But also... Also, David actually has the guts to call the entire congregation of Israel to sing about that time he was crazy. The Psalms are honest, man. They're really honest. We, we don't have to copy every single thing they did, but there's no doubt that they truly get us. There's no doubt. So what are some of the things that God calls, or David calls God here? He calls him a rock. And his fortress, right? Not exactly soft, cuddly words. Like, wouldn't it be better if God was like a pillow? <laughs> now, his rock and his fortress. David is pointing to the security and the safety provided by God's strength, his unmovableness. And again, there's that word, alone. Alone. Meaning, that the Lord is not one of many sources of safety for God, or for David. He is the source of safety for David. He is the source of strength and the source of security and the fortress from all his danger. Alone. And that is a bold, bold statement in a time period in history where all of Israel's neighbors worshipped false gods who were capricious and had a, a tendency to kind of uh, like, like go off on people. And so you had to mollify their anger by offering sacrifices just to keep them off your back for a little bit longer. That's who their neighbors are. David instead, he sees the Lord as his refuge in the middle of the chaos, instead of being a source of fear and worry for David. No, he is the source from all worry. Rest from all worry. That's just as bold a statement in our own day and age. You don't have to have neighbors worshiping false gods to get there. There are a lot of people in church life who would not hesitate for even a moment to describe God in this presence as something that is good and beneficial, something that gives them rest, something that they even hold dear and want to draw closer to, nearer to. But many of those same people would struggle to cling to God's presence as their only source of safety and strength and security and rest. They want what God offers, of course. Nobody's dumb enough to turn that down. Are you kidding me? They just... They also desperately want all the other sources of security and rest that they can get their hands on. Yeah, God's great, but can I have some of this too? That's the posture. But David understands that fortresses are only ever as good as their ability to actually protect you. You can call something a fortress. If those walls aren't solid, it's going down. And so with confidence at the end of verse 2, he says, 
I will not be greatly shaken. I will not be greatly shaken. But by, by who, though? Like, who's trying to shake? Well, verse 3. In the middle of his congregational song, David turns to face his attackers, which is fun, right? right? How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. Verse 4. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. David's like, hey, we all know what they're about, right? We all know who they are. They're, they're looking to take advantage of others, especially in the moments where those, those others are down, right? In moments of weakness. That's what they're looking to, to kind of lean on. And so uh, the, that's the word pictures that he's pointing to with a wall and a fence there, a wall that's about to fall over, all right? David, speaking to the attackers, David's like, hey, you're the kind of guy that comes along to push on the wall just to see what happens. You're looking to cause destruction, then in verse 4, David shifts from the attackers to speaking to the audience about the attackers, right? You see that change? He speaks to the congregation. He says, hey, we know what their plan is, to thrust down those in leadership, those in high places. And we know what kind of nonsense they're going to pull in order to try to do it. Falsehood. That's what he says. They may bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. They undermine. They, they seek to divide people by setting them against one another. We certainly don't have anything like that in our own day and age, right? Never possibly relate to such antics in our world. Now, the most likely scenario is that David is writing the psalm while he is king of Israel. Which means, which means, unlike you and me, David has all the power and authority he needs to put a stop to this. Like, when I have people that are trying to come after me, tear me down, like, like, I rarely am in a position to do something about it. David has everything he needs to do something about it. He's got all the authority that is required to make the problem go away and go away immediately, whether it be quietly in private or whether that be the big public declaration because the king of Israel said so. That's all David's got to do. If he wants the problem to go away, all he has to do is open his mouth. In this part of the world... In this part of human history, the monarch of the theocratic nation of Israel does not need to run his idea past anybody. He speaks, and it gets done. But instead of some royal decree, instead of hearing about how, in a completely unrelated event, the Israelite black ops neutralized the threat, we instead see a single word that feels so in entirely out of place right now. Selah. Now, if you've been a Christian longer than five seconds, you've come across the word Selah in the Bible. Again, just like Jedithan, we're not exactly sure what it means, but it's used over and over and over and over again in the Psalms in a way that causes us to make a very, very educated guess that it's probably a musical notation telling the congregation to rest. To pause and intentionally chew on what was just declared. Step back, wait before rushing on, and dwell deeply on how transcendent this truth is. And if that is true, then David just called out both the motive and the tactics of the bad guys, and immediately followed that up with a command for everyone to sit there and think upon it that reality instead of doing something about that reality. 
A few verses ago when David refused to place his hope in any other refuge than God, that, that wasn't because David didn't understand the circumstances and didn't understand his enemies. And it wasn't because David didn't understand what was eventually coming his way. And it wasn't even because David had, didn't have a real grasp of how the game was played. No, what we see here seems to be a complete refusal to play the game. He knows what's coming. He knows exactly how he will be treated by those with an agenda. But his hope will not be found in anything that he can do about it. He ain't playing that game. And I get it. Like There's some people in our world who would look at that and go, David's being a lunatic. What's David doing? Gotta get smart, David. He's throwing away an opportunity to assert his authority and kind of protect what rightfully belongs to him. I mean, come on, David. It's time to throw your weight around with some kingly gravitas. But those of you who know the Bible well, know David's story, you know it's usually the moments where he throws around his kingly gravitas that he creates the biggest problems for himself. It's usually what lands him in trouble. A man after God's own heart carries a different valuation of the world than everybody else does. Period. He often puts supreme weight on many things that those who don't know God would never consider valuable. And many of the things that the world thinks of are most important are oftentimes of no value at all to him. Sometimes, sometimes even really seemingly big things like protecting what's rightfully yours from those with an agenda. But David isn't just sitting there doing nothing. He's not waiting to be walked all over here. He is resting in the one who is trustworthy to take refuge in. See the difference there? So in verse 5, David comes back to his original call. It says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. So there, there are parts of this next little line that are verbatim of the first two verses. But then there are a couple other places, a few other places, where there is a subtle shift that greatly amplifies what, uh, what David said before. Uh, for starters, and it's really hard to see in the English, uh, but the tone becomes way more emphatic. Way more emphatic. Uh, the translators of the ESV uh, try to reflect that by adding the O to O my soul. That O isn't really there in the, the Hebrew text. It's not there in the original. Uh, they do that to show that David ups his tone here. Right? That, he, that he grows in energy in what he is saying. Right? Uh, another thing that we can point to is that the, the, the structure of the first sentence is different in the original. Again, you don't see it in the English, but it's there. It goes from God alone in verse 1 to alone God in verse 5. All right? So why does that matter? Well, because David seems to be racing as fast as he can back to his point. No, no, no. Alone, God, my soul waits in silence. God alone. No, alone, God. It's almost like he anticipates all the objections and he's doubling down as fast as he can in where he's going to put his trust. He cuts off all those who would seek to argue with him before they can even get out of the gate. There's a third difference that we can point to in these two sets of verses, and this one's easy to see in English. In verse 2, David says, he will not be greatly shaken. But here in verse 6, the word greatly is gone. David says he won't be shaken at all. His confidence in God's care for him seems to be growing by the moment. 
And so in verse 8, David turns his attention to encouraging the congregation to take up that same trust. Look at it. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. So David writes a song to the congregation, for the congregation. He's got a very, very clear purpose for doing so. He wants to shape the worship coming out of God's people's mouth. And the message he puts in their mouth to sing is to remind them to place their trust in the Lord and in the Lord alone. He says, pour out your heart before him. That's an idiom that's used in several psalms, but it's also one that's made its way all the way to our own day and age. Like, I don't even have to explain that, right? David tells the congregation to pray to the Lord, to lay yourself bare before him. Don't hold anything back. He's, he, listen, he's not just a refuge for me. He's a refuge for all of his people. Like, why would you not lean into the goodness and his great love for you? Pour out your heart to him. And then David says, Selah. Pause here and reflect deeply. And that pause is important, right? Like, like how often in our lives do, do we hear some massive truth about who God is and what he's doing and, and that, that completely turns our world upside down and then we just move on from there as if that truth only lasted for a moment? Are you guilty of that as I'm guilty of that? Like we may have ears, but we don't often hear. David calls the congregation to place their trust in the Lord rather than anything else. Pause on that. Hear it as if he's speaking directly to our own congregation this morning. Like it might be counterintuitive for us to to just run on back to whatever other things we were chasing after, after that's declared. So so tarry here, to use the the old-fashioned word. It calls us to rest. And then David launches right back into it. Look at verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. There is a long, long list of things that we are often guilty of chasing after rather than putting our trust in, uh, in, in God. And I, I think I can point to at least a few of the, the common things that we're guilty of here in this text. Uh, I think we can point to our health, our fame and our recognition, our power and influence over others, and our ability to produce. We chase after all of those and more. David says that those of low estate are but a breath. It doesn't matter if you think of yourself as an important person or an unimportant person. Either way, your life is a vapor. Doesn't that just sound encouraging? Like how many churches do you think are preaching on the shortness of your life this morning? Well, it's just small. But it's the truth. It's a truth that the Bible echoes over and over and over and over and over again. On an eternal timeline, your 80 years only barely shows up on the radar. Now, does that mean you don't matter? No. The Bible also is clear that you matter immensely to the one that made you. In fact, you matter more than you could ever possibly fathom. More than you have the ability to comprehend. But as a people, we have this really nasty habit in us of believing that our current cultural moment is the only one that's ever mattered. You ever seen that on the news? 
We tend to fall into believing that if our thing doesn't get resolved as fast as kind of we would like, then that therefore means that God is you know, either un- incapable or uninterested in helping us. He doesn't care. As if the eternal God of the universe needed to prove himself to us on a timeline of our own personal choosing. Nonsense. David says that those of low estate are a vapor. That's not just the ones of low estate that David wants to get onto. He also says that those of high estate are a delusion. Congratulations, you managed to, to secure some clout in the world. Great job, but I, I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but this world is fleeting. What are you going to do when that happens? Where, like, where your hope, where's your hope going to be when that day comes? Low estate or high estate, doesn't matter. Put them all in the balance. Together, they are lighter than a breath. And nothing. Oh, but see, I have, I have more nefarious abilities. I, I can, like, like those who play by the rules may be stuck in the rat race, but I know how to get some things done. I got some underhanded deals here. David says, put no hope in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. Those methods might bring temporary victories, but at the end of your short life, justice will prevail. And then finally, David says, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. And listen, maybe the wealth came through honest means, or maybe it came through dishonest means. Maybe it's the result of, of, of the proper reward for your diligent labor, or maybe it just dropped into your lap. It doesn't matter however it got there. That, that wealth is still fleeting, David says. It will not last. It cannot last. And so setting your heart on those riches will never, ever end well, because moth and rust will always destroy, and that's only if the thief doesn't get there first. And when the day comes, those lesser refuges, those wannabe fortresses, they will fail you. So he gets into verse 11 here. It says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his word. David points to this, to the fact that, that this teaching isn't something new. Like God has spoken repeatedly about these things. And the tone here indicates that it's not really up for debate. God has spoken and it's now time to be obedient to what he has said. Go ahead and take it to the bank. All the power belongs to God, period. Oh, and so does all the steadfast love. He is both, and he is both in perfection. See, while you and I may be nothing but a vapor, while our puny little ideas of power and influence and ability keep us busy and distracted thinking that we're something awesome, God is the one who is strong. He is the one who is a fortress and a rock of salvation. He is the one who is faithful long after all the other wannabe fortresses have run dry and fallen down in ruins. And so not only do we find rest in him because he is the only one actually capable of finding rest in, but we also find rest in him because he is the only one who can bring perfect justice to our cause. He will render to man according to his work, we're told. And he alone is capable of bringing that justice. Follower of Jesus, if we chase after the kind of rest that is found only in drawing close to the Lord, not only do you get an otherworldly rest in this life, but you also get the promise of a final and forever rest in the life to come when he finally makes all things new. 
All other things we try to cling to fail in both, like all of those departments. All the things we try to chase after in order to try to secure safety and, and understanding and peace and all those things, they all fall short in both the temporary and the eternal departments. Jesus offers an infinitely better rest. He is uniquely qualified to deliver on what everything else only ever makes empty promises on. So what do we do with this stuff, right? I mean, we, we got a psalm calling God's people to press even harder into finding their rest in God. Okay, what, what do we do with that? It warns against giving too much worry and anxiety to those with an agenda who would seek to do us harm. It even warns against adopting the tactics of the bad guys. Like, what do we do with this stuff? Well, a couple of things. For starters, we need to understand that the congregation is no different today than it was in David's story. It wasn't David's day. David saw a need to put this reminder in the mouths of God's people. He saw a need to shape their worship in this specific way. And so sing this to yourself. We need to be singing this to ourselves. Why? Because we're prone to forget it. That's why. We're incredibly prone to forget it. We're we're prone to let our eyes drift from the one who can actually provide us with the rest and security that we long for. We're prone to chase after things that make a whole lot of empty promises, but somehow never ever seem to deliver on those promises. And just like in David's day, we need songs on our lips that call us back to what is good and can actually satisfy our longings. And so we sing songs like, Come Thou Fount, and A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And we sing songs like, It Is Well, in a way that penetrates all the way down to the marrow in our bones. We sing it deeply and passionately. So, so, so how often should we sing songs like that? Well, I would argue, about as often as we are prone to forget their truths. So just about every Sunday ought to do it. If you want to be David's out there, want to get after writing a song like David's, get after it. But there's a second thing that we can take away from this psalm, from Psalm 62 today. So when we have opportunities to experience earthly forms of rest, we need to be very, very careful to walk into them with an otherworldly perspective. We account of them properly and we spend them accordingly. So this is my last Sunday uh, before I leave for a sabbatical this week. Um, my family and I will be disappearing for six weeks in a row, six Sundays. Hey, you know what's a really, really good way to waste a six-week sabbatical? To treat it like nothing more than a vacation. Yes, rest. Yes, disconnect. Yes, we have planned things to enjoy and have left holes in the calendar for some good things that we haven't even discovered yet. We'll get after them. For those of you who are worried, we're on it. Don't worry. But vacations alone, no matter how long, no matter how exotic, whether simple, whether all-inclusive, vacations alone can never, ever satisfy what God has designed to be satisfied by his holy presence alone. Period. They don't have the legs for it. Knockoffs don't work. You ever come back from a vacation and you felt like you needed a vacation to get over it? Maybe there's something eternal to that. Maybe God is teaching you something important in that moment. Maybe it's a pointer to something that needs to change. Some some of you may be ducking out of here in a few weeks to enjoy some disconnect of your own. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. But good things cannot fill holes that eternal things were meant to fill. So don't go chasing this summer after wannabe promises that never work.
Instead, leverage those opportunities to dig into the real source of rest in ways that normal rarely offers you. That's how you use those moments. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. He's good, man. He's good. He's infinitely more good than we realize, let alone pay attention to. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a time where you can put some action to that response. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Can you respond this morning? Absolutely you can. You do that by meeting Jesus. By meeting Jesus. Um, The Bible teaches that God is holy and that we are all, by default, separated from him because of our sin. He's not a refuge to those who don't belong to him. The Bible paints a different picture than that. The Bible describes him as the coming wrath for those who don't belong to him. A wrath we rightly deserve. And and one day, he will bring perfect justice to all. He will give us exactly what we are owed. And that's a bad thing. That's not a good thing. If you're on the wrong, if you're not on team Jesus, that's a very bad thing, all right? And so if that were the end of the story, that would be a significant problem for us. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love and that he made a way where there was no way. The eternal son of God, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither I nor you are capable of living. And he died on the cross as a, as a substitute in your place to make payment for your sin. The story doesn't stop there either. He also rose again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And as the king who has conquered Satan's sin and death, he now stands over the grave victorious, calling you to repent and follow him. You can do that today. You can put down your rebellion and your sin, and you can turn to him for forever rest and grace. I'd love to be helpful to you. You don't need me, but I'm here. We can talk about it. If you want to talk about it, we can do that. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe, it's, maybe you're, it's time to formally join our church family and you need to make that decision public today. Or maybe, maybe it's time to be obedient to Jesus' command on your life to be baptized. It's a way of following him. Or maybe, maybe God has called you to take his gospel message somewhere new and we would love to celebrate that call with you today. Whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the psalms. Thank you for being the God of infinite rest. How often I chase after things that can't satisfy. At things that promise rest, but always create more anxiety and work. That promise rest, but always create drama and nonsense. You are our one fortress. You are our one refuge. You are our one rock. Help us lean on you well. And for those in here who don't know you, would you make yourself known this morning? Would you call men and women into your kingdom today? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.